Ciao amici, welcome to Cinema Italiano, the podcast dedicated to the Italian experience as told by film. This week is a big one. We'll be talking about Federico Fellini's 1963 film, Eight and a Half, or Otto e Mezzo. We're joined today by special guest Albert, who joined a couple months back for the Call Me By Your Name episode. Ciao, Albert. Ciao. I'm glad to be back again. Are you ready to talk about Eight and a Half? As ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> uh, before we dive in, this is a very exciting time of year for the biannual half-off criterion sale at Barnes & Noble. Are there any films, Italian or otherwise, that you'll be picking up? Um, well, I promised myself I wouldn't buy too much, mainly because I have to save money for D23 Expo in August. But I kind of accidentally ended up at a Barnes & Noble and picked up The Heiress, Death in Venice, The Kid Brother, uh, Jules and Jim, and Swing Time, among other things. So, so I'm trying to, to wean myself away from Barnes & Noble, at least until November, mainly because I have to buy stuff at D23. <laughs> well, you're welcome for the Barnes & Noble well, discount. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for that. I was going to say, you're welcome for all the different um, promotions for the Barnes & Noble in Orlando <laughs> that you don't even go to. Um, and now you'll be able to listen to the Death in Venice episode. Exactly, exactly. That's why I'm looking forward to actually putting that in the player. Um, I actually just picked up that one myself. I didn't own it because I was just waiting for the sale. It was on Criterion Channel, though, right? Oh. I almost don't think so. Unless I'm mistaken. I know I had to rent rent it through Netflix disc. Oh, okay. So I got to watch it on a beautiful standard definition DVD from like 20 years ago. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, which I'm sure, sure is how it was intended to be f- viewed. Well, just to be fair, I watch things on Laserdisc still, so... Hey, but those are beautiful. True, true. I was watching CoverGirl on a Laserdisc from 1995, and I was comparing it to the DVD and Blu-ray transfers, and maybe it's just the nostalgist in me, but I kind of preferred the look of it on Laserdisc to both the DVD and the Blu-ray. For Laserdisc, like with, when you listen to music on vinyl, and it, it's like it's, I don't know the, the words for it, but it's like the sound is richer by nature of the format. Is it like that with the visuals of Laserdisc? Like, is there a similar kind of connection? I think for me, it's knowing that with a Laserdisc, you're getting usually what was an existing film transfer at the time. And sometimes it's something that has been restored. Like if you watch the 1994 Laserdisc for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, it's based on the restoration they had done photochemically and not a digital one. And so you know it's something that's been struck from film onto a home media format. With DVD and Blu-ray, because everything's always done digitally now, it's kind of taken away from that sense. And you feel like, yeah, you're watching the best quality there, but... It doesn't have that sense of, oh, this must have been like a 35mm film print that was run through a theater and struck on Laserdisc kind of feeling. So like I feel, I, like, I feel like the oldness of Laserdisc and how old those transfers are make it feel more like something that's been lived in as a film, which, like as blasphemous as it sounds, I like seeing that on a screen sometimes as opposed to something that just looks like it was shot yesterday. Oh, that's really interesting. I've never seen a full movie on Laserdisc, to be honest. Um, 
You have to bring your player out when you're here. In <laughs> yeah, I have to bring a carry-on with like ten dozen laser discs in it. <laughs> So transitioning over into the movie, um, I want to talk about what are some of your first impressions and memories of getting to see this one? So I had seen the film Nine, and it had totally deserved its 40% rotten score on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> but I liked parts of it. I liked the songs, because I'd never heard the Broadway cast album before. I liked the songs. Some of the stuff that people didn't respond to well I thought was nicely original such as the actual Kate Hudson number Cinema Italiano and so knowing this um, I had gone to Virginia for I think one of my cousin's graduations or something and so all the kids were playing video games in one room and all the adults were doing their adult chatter in the other room but no one was actually in the television room watching anything so I thought okay I'm not going to play video games all day so I turned on Netflix on there and scrolled around and I found Eight and a Half. And I remembered, hey, this is something that Nine was inspired by. I didn't know that it was actually directly like connected until later. So I thought, I might as well watch this movie. <laughs> and since everyone was doing their own thing, no one interrupted me th- during the entire movie. So I literally got to watch the entire movie all on my own. And when we came home the next day, I just went straight to Barnes & Noble and bought it. Would this have been DVD era, or was it on Blu-ray by now? This was Blu-ray by then, because I think at the time Criterion had put out Eight and a Half on Blu-ray, kind of as an indirect connection to, hey, Nine is in theaters, see the original instead, kind of thing. Oh, I didn't know that was the timing. Yeah. My gateway to Eight and a Half was also through Nine. Um, Actually, I wonder if that's kind of common for our generation. I feel like it might be just because of that whole idea of like something that's new and current has a call back to something older and that inspires the younger gen- generation to look towards that. I was my dad introduced me to the Nine Broadway cast album um which I really enjoyed and he said you know it's based on this movie called Eight and a Half and I think it was on TCM or somewhere where I had to DVR it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um and looking back like it's a it's a very important movie to me because it was probably my first foreign film that I really paid attention to. Certainly my first Italian film, first Criterion film and all that. Um, you know, and it's gone on to become one of my favorite movies. So, um, yeah, that first experience was super special and it stuck with me ever since. I like how Eight and a Half was the gateway for you. Like, the way Beauty and the Beast was for me. Into Criterion? Yes. Um, and I guess they're both things that inspired other things that we love. Mm-hmm. So this one's kind of tough to tackle, of course, but we'll try the best that we can. Um, first wanted to talk about sort of a basic plot summary before we get into some of the themey stuff. I wanted to share an excerpt from Fellini's book, Making a Film, which is an excellent book on its own. And it's got chapters on basically all of his movies. Um, but here's a segment from his chapter on Eight and a Half. The man is trapped and sometimes overwhelmed by his current state of affairs, and he can't can't break free from it. 
He has a wife. He has a mistress. He maintains an infinite number of relationships with which he struggles like a fly caught in a web. But without these connections, he'd probably fall into a painful abyss because he feels like he's not anchored to anything. As a result of this detachment, for a long time, life has presented itself to him as a sort of dreadful delirium without meaning or purpose. What's the use of trying to make sense of it? Doesn't the true meaning of it all perhaps lie in taking part, with every bit of energy at your disposal, in this sort of extraordinary dance by simply trying to feel the rhythm? And kind of in terms of the more explicit plot mechanics, um, Guido is a film director who's sort of going through a midlife crisis. He's creatively stifled. Um, He suffers a sort of nervous breakdown and is ordered by his doctor to recover at a spa. But while he's there trying to recover, he runs into colleagues, friends, collaborators, past lovers, and they're all swirling around in his life as he tries to piece his next film as well as his life back together. Albert, do you want to go through just a quick rundown of who some of the key players are? Of course. Um, The main figure, of course, is Guido, the film director that's creatively stifled throughout the entirety of the film. But then you meet, most importantly, the women in his life, primarily his wife, Louisa. Uh, Then, of course, there's the mistress, Carla, who in my first viewing I didn't know was his mistress until they mentioned, oh, she has a husband. (laughs) And then um, Louisa's best friend is Rosella. Claudia is someone that is mysterious for Guido. He sees her as the ideal woman, but she's actually an actress. Then, of course, another actress is Madeline, who Guido worked with before, but now has become a bit more demanding, I would say. And then one of the few male figures in Guido's life is Mario, who is a friend of his, and Mario has a new girlfriend because he's going to divorce his wife. The new girlfriend is Gloria. We never meet the wife in the film. And then finally, probably one of the most important women in Guido's life, just based on like key moments in his childhood, was Saragina, who was a prostitute. Um, and kind of tying it back to nine, re-watching Eight and a Half, I mistook Madeline's name for Claudia, because they don't say Claudia's name until the very end. So in my notes, I kept writing her down as Claudia. <laughs> and then when they call Claudia by her name, it's like, oh what is the name of this other character? Because I don't know if they even say it. Call Claudia by her name. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll Madeline by mine. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the rough idea of the plot. It's kind of hard to talk about any piece of the plot without going into the theme because it's all, or the different themes. Um, they're all just so tied together. Mm-hmm. What you see on screen is so abstract or surreal where you can you know there's a deeper meaning behind kind of all the wacky stuff you're seeing on screen. Um, Albert, would you like to bring up what are some of the topics or areas that you'd like to, uh, that struck you during the film? Okay, so during um, Guido's stay at the spa, there's an illusionist there that's trying to do a trick in terms of reading people's thoughts. And Guido actually knows who this illusionist is. And at one point, the illusionist mentions that this is partly a trick and partly real, which I always felt was the perfect way for anyone to describe cinema. Because in truth, every time you watch a film, you're watching something that has been carefully composed and edited and put together based on a whole bunch of chaotic elements. And so it feels seamlessly real when you're watching it, even though everything is a complete deception in terms of how they put it together. 
and so to have the illusionist call his own parlor trick something that's partly a trick but partly real is almost like a way for Fellini to kind of remind the audience what you're seeing is all a construct but you believe in it and that's what makes it real that idea actually tears up a theme that I that struck me watching the movie as kind of the split between honesty and truth um, throughout the movie Louisa the wife is always or is repeatedly attacking Guido for being able to lie so easily mm-hmm. um, not only to her but just kind of to everyone in his life and so thinking of the idea of being partly a trick partly real applies not only as the filmmaker as kind of the artist or the man behind the curtain but even just in day-to-day life everyone's or no one is being totally truthful with each other and there's all this deception going on if someone's displaying that in their professional life they would also bring that to their personal life yeah i could definitely see that um speaking from just my experience i'm in a i have a role at work where i'm always talking to people and for the purpose of my work i have to make sure i maintain a friendly jovial like approachable attitude but sometimes the people i talk to are utterly insane (laughs) and i have to hold back on how i really feel about them making certain demands and expecting those demands to be met and instead i just smile and tell them what i'm expected to say (laughs) when in reality i just want them to go away far far away (laughs) I don't think Louisa would like that. <laughs> One of the thing, a quote that Guido says that really stood, that really stood out to me, is that happiness is being able to say the truth without making anyone suffer. And he says this kind of late in the film, when by the time we've learned about kind of all his baggage and everything he's dealing with, and a lot of it does come down to he's lying to everyone because he doesn't he knows that the truth will hurt them and so it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy of more and more deception and more and more disconnect from those around him because he thinks that that truth and that connection will be the kind of too much to bear yeah that quote actually reminds me of of all things the the remake of miracle on 34th street where the lawyer that's hired to defend Kris Kringle tries to defend why parents tell the Santa Claus story to their kids. And he basically asks them all, would you rather have a lie that produces a smile or a truth that brings a tear? And yet Guido is saying the the true happiness is making a truth that doesn't have anyone suffer. So that truth with the tear is the antithesis of what Guido is trying to discover and realize by the end of the film. I'm impressed that you remember something from the remake of Miracle on 34th Street. <laughs> is it good? Well, as a film on its own, if the original had never existed, it is good just because, you know, it's a nice holiday film that people can enjoy watching. And I grew up with it more than the 1947 film, so I don't have that much sentiment for that one. When I did see the original film many years later, I realized, oh, wow, this is like carbon copy updated for 1990s technology and lingo and verbiage and stuff so i would say it's it's good just um other versions are better but it's it's good for for my generation Ooh, i'll add that to the christmas mm-hmm. watch list definitely add it 
um, something else about kind of truth and honesty that I hadn't mm-hmm. noticed till this time actually um, was some of the ties that the film or the parallels the film makes to Pinocchio. Um, there are only two that I could monitor this round, but one of the first nights that they're in the spa, there's like a brief moment where Guido's wearing like a long fake nose. You know, and of course, Pinocchio's the little wooden boy who, when he tells lies, his nose grows. And then later on in the film, during the harem scene, um, Rosella, who's probably the only woman Guido really sees as an equal, as like a confidant, um, all the other women in the harem are clamoring for Guido's attention. She's upstairs just kind of observing, and she jokes that she's like um, the talking cricket from Pinocchio. Like She's just there to give advice. And so, yeah, do you think do you think Guido could be kind of the little lying boy who gets himself into trouble? I can I can see that mainly because you know, Pinocchio again is a, it's a Italian folktale, and so it would be something that like historically Guido would have grown up with, and to make that comparison would show that he is still trying to reach that point where he he knows not to tell lies, in a sense. And when you mentioned Rosella, what I loved about her as a character is that she's probably the only female character that doesn't see Guido as some kind of conquest, in a sense. Like, the women in this film love him because, you know, they they learn to love him, or they love him because they want to to encircle themselves. They want to be part of his circle, but Rosella, she just happens to be connected to someone connected to Guido, so she has no vested interest but because of that she has this unclouded judgment for how to talk to him so I can see how she has that Jiminy Cricket kind of role in Guido's life and how it relates back to Pinocchio Albert you're teeing off these transitions very well (laughs) (laughs) that goes to the next thing I want to talk about Uh, Okay. Uh, which was I mean there's a lot to it but Uh how throughout the film Howard, what are the different ways that characters are kind of trapped, stifled, suffocating, and then how do they become liberated from that? Um, and so there's kind of a few different buckets I want to work through, but one wow. of them was with the women of the film. Um, you know, apart from Rosella, most of them are kind of trapped or confined in different ways. Yeah. You know, either literally like the mistress Carla is put away in a different hotel so she can stay away from everybody. Um, For Madeline, this lead actress, he won't give her any information about the part for her. So she's trapped because she needs Guido to give her this information for her to do her Mm -hmm. job. You know, everybody wants something from him and he's kind of keeping, he's disconnecting himself from them. Um, and the only one who doesn't fall for that, like you mentioned, is Rosella. Um, and the fact that she's kind of apart from all the women in the harem scene, for instance. You know, she's the one, she's the only one who doesn't even play into Guido's game. She doesn't want a part of it. And she seems the most level-headed and <laughs> well-adjusted mm-hmm. out of all of them. Yeah, she hasn't fallen for a spell. And then what, the harem scene is kind of fun to watch because when the women do actually connect which they barely do in the actual film or in the the quote-unquote reality of the film but in this fantasy when they do actually 
talk to each other, they realize that they've all been manipulated and played with by Guido, and they start to turn against him. But then as soon as he kind of pushes back, and he literally gets out a whip, which is a scene that's kind of hard to watch today. Yeah. Um, it has not aged But then well. they all... No. <laughs> but then they go back to being submissive, apologetic, and Rosella's just watching from the background. I think also because he's whipping them, he's separating them, he's disuniting them in a sense. Oh, for sure. When they think of it also, the image of a whip, I think, goes back to kind of the circus theme that kind of takes place all throughout Fellini's career. Um, You know, he literally looks like a lion tamer, whipping the animals into shape. so if Guido is like the ringmaster of the circus of his life and kind of another area about feeling trapped and this was another kind of new discovery for me this round um, you know the film famously opens in a traffic jam where Guido's in a car bumper to bumper traffic his car starts to fill with smoke he's kind of fighting trying to break out um, and then all of a sudden it cuts to him flying in the air um, so we already kind of know we're in some kind of fantastical or magical realism mm-hmm. storytelling. Um, but somebody, I think maybe his producer, has his ankle tied up to a rope as if Guido's a kite and he's pulled back down to earth. Uh, I've noticed that before this round. <laughs> but something that I noticed yeah. that kind of fed off of that was um, in the film, in the production offices for the film that they're making, the concept... Um, you can see a couple shots of the concept art for the spaceship set. Um, and what really stood out to me was it shows the spaceship or the space station almost being on, or, you know, it's coming out of the ground, of course. And it's at an intersection um, where cars are going in and out. And then the spaceship or the space station is, you know, going upwards, of course, into the air. And it made me think of the very beginning, like if where the cars are, where like kind of the insanity of the everyday intersects the rocket ship is literally a vehicle to get away from that to move into a different plane um kind of away from the chaos that's on earth um we never see a literal rocket ship in the film i think it's the the scaffolding set that kind of pops up more towards the end and of course in the film's finale um but i had never noticed that before that or tying that space station back to that traffic jam at the beginning I could definitely see that because the whole, the whole crux of this film is Guido trying to figure out not just his life but this this madcap big budget sci-fi epic film that everyone's counting on him to make. And the reality of the world is that he's trapped on Earth. He's stifled. He's stuck in that car in traffic. When you cut to that that shot of him as a human kite. Like, it does call back to the idea of that flying free, breaking free of the atmosphere with space. And it's amazing that Fellini would choose a space theme for his director's big-budget film, because space is not really... Well, at least serious sci-fi is not something that, in Hollywood or filmmaking of the era, was was not taken very seriously beyond like the occasional film like Forbidden Planet, which even then was somewhat camp in certain respects and it's amazing also just that this idea of a serious sci-fi film in a film about a director's 
creative writer's block predates what would become probably the ultimate serious sci-fi film ever, 2001 A Space Odyssey, by a whole five years, and it even predates like Solaris from the 1970s. I feel like Fellini is touching on the idea of something new and exciting in terms of genre filmmaking, because I'm, I'm kind of just like branching off here now because science fiction and film has not always been taken seriously and when it is it's more science fantasy like A Trip to the Moon or It Came from Beneath the Sea or 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea things that take place like within the Earth's immediate area then you get something like Forbidden Planet you get whatever Guido is trying to convey here you get 2001, five years later, and it's all about moving beyond the Earth, moving beyond what we know is familiar and what we know as a comfortable home, in a sense. And so Guido's struggle to create something for the sci-fi film is also, I guess, in a sense, his struggle to create something outside his comfort zone, outside what he knows to be a successful film and what he knows to be a successful vehicle for his stars to get them to the stars, ironically enough. That's really insightful. I like that a lot. Because, yeah, like, certainly in... I mean, like you said, in American film, sci-fi wasn't being taken seriously. To be honest, I don't know any sci-fi Italian movies unless there's something I'm forgetting. And even when those... When genre films really do pop up, thinking of, like, horror and giallo, I don't think those were received at the time great either so the yeah the pursuit of like sci-fi in that time probably would have been very out of place for like an art film director like guido is sort of portrayed to be at times it almost felt kind of like a joke or in the sense like it for the absurdity of it specifically there was a producer's friend or like someone a little disconnected from Guido they kept mentioning um he had a script about the Martians and that would kind of pop up every once in a while well have you read my script about the Martians yet and it'll I almost took that as someone with like a bad idea keep trying to like drive their point home Be like oh have you, have you done this yet well I think it ties in well to to how other cinema of the world was responding to science fiction because, like, as I said, it was something, especially in American cinema, that was not taken seriously beyond, like, B-movie stuff with giant lizard... No, that's Japan. With B-movie stuff about, like, crazy people from other worlds coming down to Earth. And, of course, as I'm talking now, I'm realizing, of course, totally forgot about the day that Earth stood still, where an alien comes down to Earth and tries to make peace. But even then, like, sci-fi was never seen as the kind of and I hate using this term, like the kind of Oscar bait that would bring in critical acclaim and box office figures. And as you mentioned, like since it's something that even the people in Guido's world don't take seriously, to imagine Italian cinema moving towards a direction of sci-fi when they were known at the time for, for Fellini works or for Visconti works, like those period pieces, or the surrealistic dramas, rather than something that is almost very strictly American in a sense. Because at least in the 60s, it was the Americans and the Russians that were all about the space race. 
Like, no other country had as big a vested interest in science fiction and space as those two, and it, it certainly influenced American cinema in that sense. Bringing up America and Russia is interesting. From that end, I wonder if we might take the science fiction pursuit as the Americanization of at least Guido's film, or like, are there outside influences or international influences? Yeah, as like sure, an invisible hand. That. Now I want to rewatch all the <laughs> scenes where they talk about this picture. Yeah, that's really oh. We need to revisit this. I like this. No, but I loved. Yeah, I loved that when they were visiting the big giant set that's not even a set yet it was still in pieces but being put together like it just reminded me and this is kind of how prescient um, eight and a half was it reminded me of how Star Trek the motion picture from 1979 had pretty much the same hardships as Guido's film it started off with a script that was never completed and it took a while before they finally reached an ending that everyone like agreed to very expensive special effects big giant sets like and it could have been a complete failure and in, in some respects it still is but like this whole idea of a big budget sci-fi film that is already doomed from the start and yet manages to pull itself back together like i feel like in eight and a half like whatever film he was making was his star trek the motion picture that's really interesting you should do do like a deep dive essay on this i'd love to <laughs> the sci-fi stuff i didn't think a lot about i think that's this is really interesting yeah the sci-fi is what grabbed me most well just the filmmaking the sci-fi aspect of his his film and also just the struggles of a filmmaker is really two of the big things that that came across to me in this film mainly because like since the since i was a kid i've always had a vested interest in space and that whole idea of what's out there and so sci-fi films the good ones at least appealed to me for that reason but I would definitely love one day, like in an alternate universe, to see what Guido's sci-fi film actually was. That'll be on the Criterion 4K. <laughs> yes. Or the VR. <laughs> Whatever the exactly. platform is. The virtual reality experience of 2119. Sort of switching gears, this is a big one. Um, another theme I kind of wanted to chat with you about was how it portrays men and women in this film. Um, and for what it's worth, women aren't portrayed great, but men aren't portrayed good either. Yeah. So I guess everyone loses. It's kind of like a lose-lose for everyone, yeah. To kind of open with a quote from Fellini's book, Making a Film, he says, This film should be replete with female characters. The protagonist is blinded by them. He likes all of them, as if women were one embodied by thousands of likenesses. The film should also be the story of these endless tales about the woman, continent, mysterious, and fascinating. Um, and granted, because this movie is from Guido's perspective, I don't know if I would necessarily call it the male gaze, because it doesn't feel like that kind of movie, um, but the role of women is very much defined relative to who they are to men. The women in this film are people's, are men's wives, mistresses, directors, actresses, you know, unfortunately, the women don't seem to have a lot of agency and kind of their role is unfortunately to kind of be used and manipulated by by the men. Kind of a an example of that is early in the film, um, Carla and Guido are together in her hotel room and they're like role playing. And in the middle of their kind of fantasy interaction, 
he kind of stops everything and starts adjusting her makeup. Um, and she, she jokes that he's treating her like she's one of his actresses. Cause even in this sort of intimate moment, he's controlling the situation down to her appearance. Um, you know, he has to be the one in charge of all situations. Yeah, I can definitely see how every woman in this film kind of exists to support Guido. And I think, again, that's, I think, why I, like, why I love Rosella more, because she's, she's there kind of as that outsider that has an in that she doesn't want, but she certainly enjoys using that role. It actually reminded me of a recent film, uh, 20th Century Women, with Annette Bening, Greta Gerwig, Elle Fanning, and um, this young kid that kind of looks like he could be Timothy Chalamet's little brother. <laughs> but essentially, that film had that same kind of concept. All these women exist as individual beings with their own like, distinctive personalities, but when you watch the film, you see they all kind of just exist to further support the story of what's going to happen to this young child as he grows up. And with eight and a half, you have the same thing. All these women, they are, they're never fully formed as characters because we only ever get to know them as Guido knows them. And so we only ever get to know them in terms of what they want for Guido or what they want from Guido. And uh, to use at least a 21st century uh, film term, I don't think any of them ever passed the Bakedell test, which is a very simplistic, oversimplified concept, but one that kind of can still be put to good use where none of the women in these films talk to each other about anything else other than Guido. Because Baked Out Test is, is there two women on the screen? Are they talking? And is it about a man? And if it's about a man, they fail the Baked Out Test. If it's not about a man, then they pass the Baked Out Test. And I'm trying to remember any scene in Eight and a Half where the women on the screen are talking about anything else that's not related to Guido, and I am coming up short. <laughs> So again, just further supports this whole idea that all the women in this film only exist for Guido's benefit in terms of his story journey, his story arc. And so they are they are given the short short end of the stick in that way. But because this is such a very intensely personal film about this one person, I can see why it had to be done that way. Um, you said that really well. I think to to clarify too, like I don't I think slash hope Fellini isn't saying this stuff about women. It's about how Guido sees women. And we can see by the way that he treats that he treats women, he doesn't treat them great. So his perception of them probably isn't great either. A little warped here and there. Uh, if you think of our lives and we're all the stars of our own movie, everyone in your life is relative to to you obviously that's not the reality but that's your perception as you think of who are all the people in your life and what role do they play in your life um in this movie i'm just kind of sad um, maybe not satirize isn't the right word but it kind of pushes that to an extreme where all these all anybody can talk about the men too is guido in his film but guido is also so self-centered that that's probably all he knows he notices or thinks about yeah and kind of going along with um 
you know, hopefully Fellini doesn't think this way about women. I admire how it addresses kind of the Madonna whore dichotomy, which is prevalent probably in a lot of cultures and certainly in Italian culture where there's two kinds of women. They're either pure, innocent saints, you know, like the Virgin Mary, or they're, they're degraded prostitutes. It's these insane extremes and you're, you're one or the other. A scene that was an interesting play off this idea um, is when, after Guido and the other boys encounter Saragina, uh, Guido's forced to go to confession, and the priest tells him that Saragina is the devil. So, you know, so in this idea, she's the degraded prostitute of the Madonna whore dichotomy. And then after this, he goes back and sees her at the beach, and she's sitting there you know, staring or looking into the sea, singing to herself, wearing a long white veil. It almost looks like she's about to get married and wearing the symbol of purity, a white veil. And she's not doing anything salacious. She's just sitting there. And so I kind of moments like that, I think critique are good critiques of that extreme view of women and showing the absurdity of it that no one's totally one or the other but i mean if they were there's nothing wrong with that either exactly because like as you mentioned the the whole madonna uh or dichotomy like when you think about it the two most well-known marys in the bible is mary mother of god and or mary mother of jesus and mary magdalene and they share the same name but they're both viewed very differently based on how it's interpreted because you have the sinful woman and the the virtuous one and I think that also just relates more to and this is just me rambling now, the whole view of Catholicism in the film primarily uh, a sense of Catholic guilt on Guido's part because as a child he grew up with all these strict morals embedded into him and you know you, you mentioned that scene with the priest talking about how Saragina is actually the devil but i remember guido says like i did not know that and so for him he, like he's conflicted between the morals that's supposed to guide him through adulthood versus his own his own need to create something and to use his creativity sometimes against what his teachings have taught him and Guido himself is not exactly living to the morals of the Catholic Church. He's having an affair openly, but still secretly. And he's, he confers with people that are getting annulments from their wives rather than divorces, because divorce is frowned upon in Catholic Church. But just this idea of the Catholic guilt in the sense of, like, how do you resolve the, the teachings that you're meant to take to heart as a child versus I guess the reality of the world as you're trying to skew it for the purpose of creation and when Guido sees the cardinal all the all the guy just tells him is there's no salvation outside the church and Guido feels kind of I guess torn because this is an elder that he's supposed to to worship in the sense of like listen to and take heed by his advice and yet he's other among other things totally useless to him and so he's he's conflicted not just with 
his whole idea of creativity, but how it how it's conflicting with what he was taught. And I'm just rambling now. <laughs> no, no, I like where you're going. When that the whole relationship with the cardinal is interesting, and actually another thing that stood out to me more this round, because um, I think before they even mention priests or a cardinal or anybody. Guido's in an elevator at the hotel with three or four holy men. I don't know if we know one of them's a cardinal yet. Um, And they, like, barely make eye contact with him. And then later on, he's asking their advice for a scene in his film in which the protagonist confers with a cardinal and the priest that he's speaking with kind of brushes it aside like oh that would never happen a cardinal wouldn't just randomly talk to someone like this you know of course guido is talking about himself and then within the reality of the film shortly after guido is told the cardinal would like to come see you now and so it i don't know if it necessarily is supposed to show hypocrisy but it kind of shows the fickleness of the church setting up this figure, excuse me, the Cardinal as someone, oh my gosh, I'm like losing my voice. (laughs) I'm just getting really choked up talking about the Cardinal. (laughs) I have a, I have a bottle of water with me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, as a figure of, as someone to be revered and sort of kept at a distance. And then all of a sudden he's accessible. No problem out of nowhere. Um, and it's hard to think that the fact that Guido is a film director who's moderately well-known doesn't play into that. Because if he was any old Joe at the spa, would he be given an audience with the Cardinal? Um, I don't know where I'm going with that, but I thought that was interesting. This kind of switching gears, but a formal element I noticed that was really interesting was how the sound design would be altered to show Guido's perspective and kind of tell us where his head is at in different scenes throughout the film. Um, Kind of early on when he first gets to the spa, the Barber of Seville is playing as you get this kind of wide epic shot of all the folks at the spa coming to collect their mineral water. And then the music stops out of nowhere when Guido sees a woman, a beautiful young woman in the forest who kind of glides in to serve him his mineral water. And then he sort of snaps and comes to the music starts again. It's a different woman. She's not as beautiful as his fantasy one. She's kind of sweaty. Um, But the sound kind of going off temporarily sort of shows his disconnect from his reality and what's going on around him for that brief moment. And then when the sound snaps back on, it takes him back to that reality so like through sound it's kind of setting up what is what is real life and then when that sound is changed that helps cue you to what is not reality um obviously there's a lot of surrealism in this movie did you notice other things like that well one thing i really liked was when they have these like big orchestral moments and they play those familiar scores when he's at the spa you actually see someone conducting but they have like a small like probably like seven eight piece band but it (laughs) sounds like it's a full like 40 piece orchestra so already you get that deception with the sound 
but the the moment you mentioned where he sees a woman and the sound stops and then it cuts back to the reality and the, the music starts again and you see the actual woman there like it just shows like it's a nice audio clue for us that what we're seeing is not always going to be true and sometimes maybe the lie is better than the truth because that young woman was better than the one that was actually giving him water I actually just thought of this now but that totally happens at the end of the film too in the finale there's a band of clowns plus young Guido so maybe five musicians mm-hmm. who are playing kind of the eight and a half march theme um, and then at one point the curtain opens on the scaffolding set and you see all the masses of people from Guido's life and similar to what you mentioned about the mini orchestra at the spa all of a sudden it sounds like this huge like 50 piece orchestra playing this music even though all we've seen is just these five clown musicians. So again, kind of like tying sound design back to kind of the grand grandiosity. Yeah, that's the word. Um, <laughs> the like scope of the moment kind of matches the music. Um, to be honest, I'm not familiar beyond what I could piece together from Wikipedia. I'm not very familiar with Riot of the Valkyries or Barber of Seville in terms of like what they are about. Do you have any insights or thoughts around why those songs were picked or what they might evoke? Not really, honestly. Um, yeah, it was just the Ride of Valkyries, Barber of Seville. Then they had Dance of the Reed Flutes, which you had cited earlier, like in your notes here. And then the, later on, they play Saber Dance when Carla comes upon Guido and Luisa in the in the cafe, I think it was. And like, what I feel like these. What song is that? I I saw that in your the, notes. It's the one that's like. Oh, from like cartoons when someone's like yeah. about to drop something. Yeah. Oh, okay. I but know. like that song, that song is used mainly like the original context. I think was like swordsmen showing them like their different tricks with like fighting and stuff. But like when you put that against the scene of the man, his wife, and his lover, like it almost becomes like a claws out kind of moment, and like you expect there to be a big like fight that's about to happen, but instead it it kind of goes against the purpose of the music, and you just have a a very calm, um, very calm and very cordial conversation going on. So it's like the music is commenting on what they expect you to see, and then you don't get that. Ooh, I respectfully disagree. I think Louisa is tripping out. <laughs> She's really? getting all riled up. That was, that was my take on it. I mean, I hear you like they're sitting down, like they're being pleasant. Uh-huh. But I can, I mean, just thinking of that song, I can like see her face when she starts yeah. to get mad and she's like huffing and puffing. I shouldn't laugh because she has every right to be mad. <laughs> exactly. But, she... but again, it also goes back to the partly a trick, partly real. Like, what you choose to show versus what your actual intent is. Like, she probably wants to tear her hair out and everything. And, like, maybe in some way she is showing that. But she also knows not to make a scene. It kind of goes without saying that all of these are, like, exceptional actors. But... 
Anukaimi? I'm probably not saying that Anukame. name. Anukame. She's like she's excellent. excellent. I almost she think she's my favorite performance in it. I'm surprised of the um, actresses. Claudia Cardinale is the top build. Um, because I feel like Louisa kind of makes a bigger impact. Yeah, well, I think Claudia Cardinale was probably the best known of the time. I'm not, I'm not big on Italian cinema, but I, like, I feel like, because she was in, like, Le- The Leopard and Rocco and His Brothers, and so by eight and a half, like, she probably already was a bigger name than Anouk, who would have been a French actress, right? So that kind of also puts her in an outsider mode in terms of at least like cultural identity with these characters. That's true. This is going to sound mean, and I don't mean it this way. I guess I never, when I think of Italian actresses I really love, I don't think of Claudia Cardinale. And that's not, I don't dislike her, but she's just kind of not on my mind. But yeah, maybe she's on a lot of other people's minds. <laughs> maybe, yeah. I think one thing that really struck me in the sense of this conflicted, tortured artist is that Guido, even amidst all his success, he probably also fears he's becoming old news. Because when you look upon the women in his life, they range in all these ages. And the extreme youth is in Gloria, that young girlfriend of Guido's friend, and how she is just so wild and uninhibited and she is essentially the future of what women in his life might be versus his mother who is old and saintly and highly revered and it's even touched upon in the fantasy with the women when they're all in the harem and he kicks out Jacqueline because she had gotten older and he incited that rule about like once you reach a certain age you have to go upstairs and dwell in your thoughts and then it's through that that they all band together to tell him, like, hey, you're getting older too. And when you think about that from the creative standpoint, you have to think also, like, how many years does someone have to remain creatively relevant? And it got me thinking, like, for Guido, like, this is his big budget sci-fi epic picture, and he's not even sure how he's going to make it work. For Fellini, this was only his eight-and-a-half film out of what would become so many other films later on that he doesn't even realize yet. But when you think about any, like, director, they always have that period where they're in their prime, and they're putting out things that everyone is loving and enjoying if they're successful enough to have that kind of career. But then when you look back on some directors in the past, like, and you look at what was their last film, and you realize that sometimes it was something so completely out of touch with what was current in Hollywood that I feel like this is something that was eating at Guido too through his depiction of the women like reacting to his kicking out Jacqueline like he's also fearing like maybe I'm getting old maybe I don't have anything new to offer and the two examples that I want to talk about for this was um, Cecil B. DeMille and George Cukor because DeMille was very much a silent movie director he had come from the stage and he had done silent films and then he did sound films, but he was always very old-fashioned compared to other directors that would come in his wake. And his last film, The Ten Commandments, is a big biblical epic, but it has all the pageantry and style of a silent film, because that's how he knew his filmmaking. And it 
contrasted greatly to any other biblical epic that would come before or after it, like Ben-Hur from William Wyler, or in a sense, Greatest Story Ever Told by um, George Stevens. And so when you see his last work versus, let's say, George Cukor, who was a, the woman's director in the 30s and 40s, and his films have stood the test of time, but then when you see that his very last film is a 1981 remake of Old Acquaintance, which was a film from his own era in his prime, and it was received terribly. Roger Ebert said, it's a slick, trashy, entertaining melodrama with too many dumb scenes to qualify as successful. Like, you gotta wonder, like, did George Cukor realize he was getting out of touch, or was he just sticking to his own sensibilities and hoping it would still translate for a later audience, a generation removed from his? And so with Guido, like, this inevitability of time, he knows he's gonna get older, and with that with that old age, is he gonna become as relevant as he wants to be, or is he gonna be like the Cardinal, where he just spouts out the same old thing and it can't be taken seriously anymore. So that was one of the things that really like affected me in watching the film, and especially the harem scene, the idea that, yeah, you're going to get older, and you might lose relevance because of it. Well, and that's something that surely would have been on... I mean, not like he necessarily thought cared what the public thought of him, but you think it had to have been on Fellini's mind somewhat with his previous film... Um, La Dolce Vita, which is probably, I mean, probably kind of tied with Eight and a Half as his most popular, but it was such a breakthrough international success, made him one of the best known directors in the world. Yeah, how do you keep raising your own bar, essentially? Um, You know, and sadly, after Eight and a Half, I think some people might argue that that was Fellini's high point, or La Dolce Vita. as his films became more and more experimental, less linear, more surreal, um, you know, I'll admit they're very hard to follow and hard to engage with. I think Fellini Satyricon is really challenging, um, and The Ship Sails On is not as engaging in this film from the 80s. Um, I don't want to say like he loses his touch, but this era of the early 60s and then from the late 50s with his earlier movies in my opinion i think that's fellini's prime yeah that's actually the only fellini i've seen i've only seen la strada la nota di caberia la dolce vita and eight and a half and it's like i want to see his other work but at the same time it's like how will it compare i'm kind of afraid to see how it will compare a marcord is good see you can see that yeah, I've heard a lot of good things about that one. And it's like number three on Criterion, right? Number three or number four in their list. Yeah, it is early. Um, and I mean, all, all of his movies have strengths and weaknesses for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's just like sometimes directors are afraid they'll never live up to their past successes, and which is why sometimes their films that come afterwards tend to keep taking that great leap forward and trying to find something new and innovative. That's why they got to turn to science fiction. Exactly. Uh, to kind of close us out, what would you say is kind of your main takeaway from either this viewing or just, you know, a lifetime of visiting this one? What is the a last kind of message you'd want to impart? 
I think for me, at least for this viewing, my main takeaway is just that how we approach our lives should never be done selfishly. For Guido throughout this film, like he has all these people reliant upon him, and he in turn realizes just how reliant he is upon them. But he also, in this film, has shown that he is not always mindful of how reliant he is upon them. And so when he, when you approach life, you have to realize that everyone has their own baggage, their own problems. And yes, they can affect yours, but you also, it's reciprocal, you affect theirs. Like, there's a word that I always love that was coined like probably like 10 years ago called Sonder, which is the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own. So, like, you may be the star of your own television series, but the person behind you in line is a star of theirs, and they have their own problems, their own little storylines going on. And Guido in this film, he's not fully aware of that. And I think the takeaway is you have to be aware of everyone else's life in relation to your own, but also your life in relation to theirs. For sure, like the theme of like interconnectedness and how like we aren't a sea of individuals. Everyone connects and everyone's lives impact each other and not in significant ways. Um, I think for me, my first few viewings of it were very much focused on kind of the filmmaking and the creativity side. And obviously that is very much there in this movie. But kind of as I get older, I notice more, you know, what are what is the relationship between men and women and kind of like crit- critiquing those imbalances um you know and kind of the relationship side you know stands out more and more as well um and so i kind of am seeing it less as a movie about movies and more of a movie about how do we how do we relate to one another and then how can we how can we treat each other better (laughs) um when you watched it this round was there another film that it made you think of or is there something you would recommend Definitely, I think because, like, I there's not the, there's not enough movies about making movies in cinema, and so when you find one that really sticks out to you, like it and a half, you kind of want to find others like it, and one that was, for me, not really inspired by eight and a half, but one that like came on my radar was 2007's The Son of Rambo, which was directed by Garth Jennings, a British filmmaker, and. It's an underrated little gem of a film that, like, if you find it, you definitely, like, will enjoy it. But um, it's about a generation of children who, in the 80s, because of home video and, like, home movie cameras, they want to make their own Rambo movie. And it starts off, you think it's about them making a Rambo movie, but it becomes more about a friendship that develops. And there's issues of bullying, siblings... um, some similar themes to have too, with the tortured artist, like, a loner that realizes he needs people, and there's also that conflict of, like, a self-satisfaction in what you want to see versus the people-pleasing necessity of a creative work. And yet the kids are 12 when they're going through this, whereas Guido was, like, what, 40-something? And so I would recommend Son of Rambo just because it's a movie about making movies, but ultimately it's not about making movies, rather the relationships that you make because of it. That sounds really cool. I've never heard of that movie, actually. 
Um, is that on streaming somewhere, or how can people watch it? Um, I know that it has a Blu-ray. Paramount released a Blu-ray, or not Blu-ray, a DVD back in 2007 when the fil- film first came out, but I'm pretty sure it's probably on Netflix or something. Yeah, I'll have to try that one. Um, I would recommend, it's not about making movies, but kind of another surreal exploration of all the people in your life um, type movie is Valerie and Her Week of Wonders, which is part of the Czech New Wave, um, and it's available on the Criterion Collection and Criterion Channel. Um, And it's almost like an Alice in Wonderland type story about a young girl becoming a woman and all the people both predatory and benevolent in her life um but it's told very creatively like beautiful musical score and the ending actually reminds me a lot of the ending of eight and a half with all the people of her life coming together um and it's just a great movie period but it thematically reminded me a lot of eight and a half yeah i remember the year that valerie and her week of wonders hit criterion uh, you were going on and on about it that year, and it actually inspired me to pick it up along with the Eclipse box set, Pearls of the Czech New Wave. And I haven't made it through the box set completely yet, but what I did see, I kind of enjoyed too. Did you get to see Valerie, no, or not yet? Not yet, I don't know why. I think because I was trying to go chronologically, and like there was a film in Czech New Wave that was before Valerie, so I did that one first. The Czech New Wave, I definitely need to learn better. Like, I know Daisies is supposed to be, like, a landmark film. Um, but I have the Eclipse set now. So I have no excuse. Where can people find you on social media? Okay. On social media, I have my own blog. It's called I'll Be Seeing You. Um, it's basically where I collect my thoughts, mostly film-related, sometimes music-related, or just personal like stories or fiction that I write. I'm also on Letterboxd. It's the username Escape, or it's under my full name, Albert Gutierrez. Likewise, I have an Instagram, Captain Escape. And I'm on Twitter also as at Escape. And then, of course, if you ever want to listen to me outside of Cinema Italiano, um, I have my own podcast series with two friends, Calvin Cedeno and Pedro Hernandez. We're called The Three Commenteers, and we mainly do audio commentaries for Disney films. We haven't released an episode since about April of two years ago, but we're hoping to, to restart it again soon. And... Um, I've also made a couple appearances on Zippity Doo Pod with Aaron Wallace, but no, that's pretty much it. Cool, and we'll include links to all those in the show notes as well. Um, if you haven't yet, please be sure to follow, subscribe to us on Facebook and Instagram at Cinema Italiano Podcast. Um, rate and review us on iTunes or Spotify or however you listen to podcasts, and be sure to hit subscribe so you always see the latest episode. Sorry, it's been a few weeks since the last one. Hopefully we'll get on a good cadence going forward. Um, Thank you for listening. And until next time, ciao Amici and ciao Albert. Ciao Steven.